Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversation with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Soho is one of the most iconic neighborhoods in Manhattan, much beloved by both New Yorkers and tourists, with its cobblestone streets, unique collection of cast-iron buildings, quaint cafes, and restaurants. It is the creative and dynamic vibe that draws people here from around the world, a sophisticated and stylish blend of fashion, art, and business. It's hard to imagine that Soho once was an industrial neighborhood that went from being called Hell's Hundred Acres and should be demolished to the best place to live in Manhattan, according to the New York Times, in the 1970s. Here to share the fascinating and dramatic story of how Soho became Soho is our guest Aaron Skuda, the author of Lofts of Soho, Gentrification, Art and Industry in New York. Aaron received his PhD from the University of Chicago and is the project manager of the Princeton Mellon Initiative in Architecture, Urbanism and the Humanities. You have um, written a wonderful book, I have to say, a great book about Soho that really makes the history of this place uh, come alive uh, in, a, in a wonderful and uh, dramatic way. So many transitions uh, in, this, in this process and it's uh, interesting to live uh, in the middle of it, in the middle of it every day. It is a book that came out of my PhD um, dissertation, as is the case for most historians. You write a, you know, you're in graduate school, you write a dissertation, and the idea is if you want to continue your career, you turn it into a book. Yeah. I mean, I actually did go to graduate school with the idea of, of studying the, the history of gentrification. It's not, it's something now, there's kind of a, I guess a small portion of a generation of historians kind of writing these histories. You know, I have a colleague who, um, of colleagues I'm close with, one wrote a book about um, Brownstone, Brooklyn, the other one wrote a book about Harlem. Um, but I went to graduate school trying to think about, well, how might I study the, the, the early days of what we might call gentrification? Mm. And I was actually just reading a book after my first year of graduate school, which was about the, the summer of summer of New York, uh, the summer of 1977 in New York, you know, considered by many to be sort of the, the low point in New York's 20th century history. It was the summer of Sam, it was the yeah. blackout riots um, that affected so much of, of, of the city, and it was also this tumultuous year for the Yankees with Reggie Jackson feuding with Billy Martin. That was actually the kind of the center of the book. I am a baseball fan myself. <laughs> but there's two pages, actually, about um, your neighbor up... Um, uh, up Broadway, it was two pages about Dean and DeLuca. It was the year that Dean and DeLuca opened. And, you know, there's this moment when, you know, the book said, hey, you know, all these not so great things are happening in New York. And there's this moment when this shop opens that for, for some people sort of signaled the end of a certain era of Soho. The neighborhood had kind of arrived to the point that this gourmet grocery store um, opened. And, you know, Dean and DeLuca's history is actually, you know, quite interesting and complicated. But to me, that sort of signaled this um, productive contradiction. Like, how do you get a store like Dean and DeLuca opening up in 19, you know, I forget whether it's 1976 or 77, but mm. opening up right at the time where New York was going through some of its lowest points. It was the time of the, you know, the near bankruptcy, the emergency um, fiscal um, manager that, that came in. So how do you get this, the end of a kind of early era of gentrification at a time when the city is, is struggling so much? And that was really when I began to, you know, I began to ask this question and invest, you know, went back to write a history of Soho. Certainly it's a neighborhood that's been studied by academics but not really in the sort of um, the way that a historian would study it, let's say. Very interesting. So um, how would you define Soho? 
a surprisingly complicated question. I mean, you could be, you know, you could do what urban planners at once did and essentially say, well, the area from West Broadway to Broadway, Houston to Canal Street, sort of constitutes the, the Soho district, right? There is there's a historic district that has been expanded, but roughly that's at its core. Um, you know, one could also say that really what defines Soho is this is the, the cast iron architecture, this particular legacy of the 19th century that shaped its um, industrial past, its rise as an artist colony, and certainly you know shapes the very space that we're we're talking in today. But Soho is also this idea, right, that it stands in for something more. You know, every once in a while I talk to someone like, do you mean the one in Britain or the one in New York? Or mm. The one in New York. But you know, there's this nomenclature that is developed that the you know the podcast 99% Invisible called an acronym. Yeah. You know, some places like you know Financial District, FIDI, the South Bronx can be you know Sobro, we have Dumbo over in over in Brooklyn. There's this the sense that like Soho now means something. It means a particular kind of urban redevelopments that's perhaps led by artists. It's oftentimes in a, you know, a formerly industrial area, or maybe just has some sort of, you know, gritty artistic chic to go along with the kind of uh, the, you know, the redevelopment of the area. Yeah. So, you know, Soho can mean a lot of things. Yeah, the embourgement. I yes. saw that. That's a very elegant uh, term, uh, probably borrowed from the French, which yes, means like sure. gentrification, right? In a yeah, more glamorous way. Something, yes, becoming more bourgeois, more um, stable. Um, so let's start at the beginning then. So this was um, this was like agricultural uh, land basically in uh, in the what 1700s. Yes, in yep, in the 17th century, like like all Manhattan, it was it was agricultural land, and you know Soho, in a sense, its early years. I mean, I call it Soho, but that in itself is you know. There was no Houston streets, you know. There's no. It wasn't south of anything. But you know, this part of Lower Manhattan sort of underwent the similar process that the, the rest of the island did, where initially everyone was kind of all clumped together at the you know the southern tip of the island, and then first the wealthier people want to get away from the sort of smells and the noise and congestion of everything that was happening in New York, so they they move north. So right in the 1820s, Soho was among the you know kind of wealthier residential areas of the city. Hmm. But you know, it sort of rem reminds me of the kind of classic diagram of uh, Robert Park and Ernest, I'm sorry, um, Ernest Burgess, this you know, sociologist at the University of Chicago in the 1920s who you know, theorized that cities moved kind of in this concentric ring model through a process of invasion and, and its succession. Mm -hmm. Where essentially, you know, whoever moves, whoever can move out does, but eventually, the next inner rung moves out and takes over the the one that moved out first. So first you have residences and then yep. you had commerce. So in the 1820s, this area was residential. In the 1850s, it became more um, profitable for you know commercial establishments to to locate in this area. So the you know Lord and Taylors, Tiffany's, some of these major retailers had their first homes and what it, their first buildings in what is now Soho. But by the 1860s, you know, industrial uses, you know, the industry moved further and further up Manhattan, pushing commerce out, pushing residents out. And by the 1860s is when you start be beginning the era that at least gives us the current built environment of Soho. That's when the industrial loft comes into being. That's when dry goods firms kind of um, manufacturers, warehousers built you know, these Six, uh, four to six story cast iron structures, you know, to house industrial businesses, but ones through, because of the sort of the complicated history of the neighborhood, remain to this day. I see. So, um, what strikes me uh, often when I'm here is the beautiful architecture and the cast iron uh, buildings, and and you do talk about that in your book, uh, and it's inspired by French and Italian neoclassical. Mm -hmm. 
But what explains that it's so concentrated here, that there's so many buildings that are so beautiful here rather than in any other place? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like a lot of things, it's a bit of circumstance. You know, it was this, you could, you could consider the loft a bit of a transitional structure, right? It's, it's something that required a, a certain amount of industrial production and prefabrication, but it is not, it predates the skyscraper. So you had in this period of time um, new techniques in, in iron in um, kind of iron foundries that would allow these you know what what looked like very beautiful facades are actually prefabricated pieces of iron right they're built in factories some in New York some as far away as um, Alabama but you know they're they're iron pieces that were you know constructed and you know, shipped here and could be sort of slapped on the side of a building. And in that, you know, in the 18, in the late 19th century, you can imagine this was roughly the time of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. It was a period where neoclassicism was in vogue, rather ornate, um, you know, ornate structures. So you had, you know, when, you know, when industry sort of crept north in from lower Manhattan to this particular point in the city was when you had this confluence of factors, you know, iron prefabrication, neoclassicism being in vogue. So you get the loft, right? But only a few years later, there are more techniques, you know, steel production becomes um, the predominant building type. You don't have what are essentially rather dangerous cast iron columns holding up the building. Yeah. Um, and you know neoclassicism falls out you know falls out of favor you know not too many years later you have you know the beginnings of the period of you know modernism and the international style and sort I see. Of the fussiness of the loft falls out of, out of favor. so it's unclear to me so 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 you have the architecture and you have the loft and that was designed for residential first or was it sort of industry moving into residential still the loft is pretty it's pretty I mean this we're sitting in a room here in a building that used to be the uh, manufacturers of harmonicas. Mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah. uh, so was that the, the case that it was residential first, and then it, the industry moved in? Well, it was the, this area was residential, but you know the structure; those structures have, you know, with rare exceptions, have long since been torn down. So it was a residential area, but then the residential structures were torn down, and industrial concerns or investors, you know, built these loft structures, which were not designed for residences at all. The first the ground floors oftentimes were designed as showrooms or um, as if, you know, some of the few lofts that haven't been completely renovated, one that um, Daya, uh, the Dia Foundation owns over on West Broadway mm. was a kind of tobacco um, sales floor, a place where people you know, come and buy um, wholesale. Um, so the first or second floors were maybe designed as, co as commercial spaces, but the upper floors are almost entirely um, industrials. So they were designed for um, light manufacturing, or as time went on, increasingly heavier manufacturing, um, or warehousing, or um, pr primarily for, for sort of dry goods and wholesaling firms. So what explains the, the concentration here was that there was a lot of different driving forces that really made it uh, concentrate on this. Uh, going back a little bit, you, you, I, I noted in your book here that the, uh, it was commercial here. So it was like uh, Times Square down here. You see uh, Gotham's Golden Mile of Whoredom, <laughs> which was like the, pay me the tail end of Times Square then. Uh, it was, and my, um, my colleague, actually my editor, Timothy Guilfoyle, wrote a great book about this. But it was, it, it was the, the place, you know, kind of the center of prostitution in, in the city, um, in, especially in the 1850s. It kind of had this um, dual, you know, 
dual role. Like one is it was you know a very high-end shopping district, as I mentioned, you know, Tiffany's, Lord and Taylor's, other sort of high-end retailers of the day located here. But at night it was the place where you know people came for you know mm -hmm. for for that sort of activity. Um, eventually that sort of gets dispersed throughout the city, but that that was that was its nature in the, in the 1850s. But again, like that, that predates the loft era. Like a lot of the loft buildings replaced what was, you know, the original homes of Tiffany and Lord Taylor. So then you, you move on to, to uh, the uh, sort of the industrial part of it then at 1890, 1950 or something like that. So, so what happened here? So people moved out, uh, the, the department stores moved out, the uh, hotel closed and... Uh... They, they moved out and the industrial era really begins. So somewhere, you know, long era, but you know, the 1860s to the 1890s, the area becomes more and more industrial. But by the 18, by the, the turn of the 20th century, the built environment of Soho is essentially you know, with few exceptions, looked like what it looks like today. Mm -hmm. um, and it really, there is this period of, of kind of stasis. You have, you know, dry goods wholesaling, light manufacturing, you know, some, some type of gar you know, garment work. That was really what made up um, Soho's industrial sector. And, you know, it the area provided jobs for quite a few people. There are businesses that remained in the area for, for decades, you know, making modest profits. But it wasn't, let's say, the most dynamic sector of, of New York's economy. Um, and, and, you know, by World War II, was a, it, the neighborhood was very similar to what it was at 1900. Yeah, I was very fascinated by, in your book, you write about the fact that New York never had really had an industrial base. It was not like Detroit. I mean, it, it, it's been more of a trading um, and service-oriented city. It had a, a, quite a robust industrial base. I, I think just because of the sheer size of New York, it was among the nation's you know, largest industrial centers. But I think what differs, you know, you think about the kind of older American cities, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, they were industrial centers, but they were rather diverse ones, right? Their, their industrial base sort of comes from their earlier history as a place where agricultural goods came in from the surrounding areas, were packaged for shipments, were, um, you know, it's where, you know, people came together for trade, um, and, then, and then you have shipbuilding, then you have warehousing, and then from there you start to get sort of the base of an industrial city. Mm. Um, you know, the Pittsburghs and Detroits, you have, you know, a confluence of factors that made them, you know, essentially one industry towns. You know, Pittsburgh, it's the, um, you know, the major industrialists, but also the availability of coal from the Monongahela Valley. You know, Detroit, you have a relatively flat area with good access to, to um, uh, water transportation through the Great Lakes, but you have someone, you know, Henry Ford, essentially remaking the city in his own image. Yeah. So New York you know, had an industrial base, but it was never that one industry town. So then uh, you, you talk about in the book, Hell's 100 Acres. Mm -hmm. So that was the tail end of the industrial uh, face, one could say, here right. in, in Soho. Right. Yeah, I mean, lofts were high-tech industrial um, structures for the late 19th century. Yeah. But for the mid-20th centuries, there were some challenges, right? I mean, the space we're in now is fast for a residence, but if you imagine operating a small factory in, in a space that's maybe, you know, um, 5,000 square feet, that becomes challenging, particularly if you have a cast iron column in the middle of that space that's holding up the entire structure. Um, so, you know, after, particularly after World War II, when, you know, more, more, you know, more, um, 
more goods are being moved by truck over the interstate highway system, you start to get industrial production moving in a very horizontal direction. Power is cheaper, conveyor belts are put into a use. There's a, um, because uh, you know there are more efficiencies that allow industrial production to happen um, in on one floor in a streamlined way where you go from you know um, raw materials on one end to a product on the other that can be loaded onto a truck. So Soho is really at a disadvantage for that type of manufacturing. You know we don't have um, there are there's no room for horizontal spaces. There's no um, big freight rail line where you can load goods onto and driving a you know an eighteen wheeler down a street in Soho is a nightmare. Yeah. So you have more and more marginal industrial businesses um, kind of hanging on in Soho and more and more vacancies. And that's when you start to have artists begin to move in. I see. So the, the artists, uh, they are moving in slowly here in the beginning of the 60s and mm -hmm. 70s. But before then, there was some, or, or rather, uh, in parallel, there was a lot of urban renewal uh, initiatives. Uh, and we had this, uh, the Lower Manhattan Expressway, uh, designed by uh, uh, Moses, uh, the city planner. Yeah, and there, you know, you, you mentioned Hell's Hundred Acres. I mean, this was not an area of the city that was particularly valued. There were old buildings; they mm -hmm. were considered rather marginal. And the, one of the other phrases that um, planners or observers would would use for this area is the valley, because you look you look one way, you see the high rises of Lower Manhattan. You look at the other other way, you see the high rises of Midtown. Yeah. The area in between was both sort of a, a a literal and an economic valley, right? It wasn't seen as particularly productive. And during this era, during the, the period from you know, roughly the 1920s to the 1930s, urban planners, architects, policymakers, there was a general consensus among, among these groups that the best thing to do with unproductive areas of the city were to sort of tear them down, you know, raise the area if possible, and start anew. So you know, I mentioned my parents lived in, in um, the Silver Towers. That was part of the Washington Square Southeast Urban Development Project. It was something that New York's, uh, New York's uh, City Planning Commission, uh, Robert Moses, New York University, um, came together using federal money and uh, city coordination you know, to you know, buy and tear down a, not, a roughly nine block area of structures, a lot of them resembling Soho Loft, some sort of smaller um, residential structures, you know, and building um, I guess what is now five high-rise apartment uh, apartment buildings. So that was one plan. That was you know a, a project that affected the area all the way up to Houston Street. And there were plans in the early 1960s to tear down the rest of what is now Soho and build you know similar middle-income housing projects. Um, on the other hand, um, from roughly the 1920s to about 1970s, there were plans to connect the Holland Tunnel to the Williamsburg Bridge through a multiple-lane highway across Broom Street, which was you know, known as the Lower Manhattan Expressway. Um, this was sort of for reasons of expense and political will. These were among the last projects of the Robert Moses era of highway construction, none of which were ever built. You know, mm. We have lots of highways in New York, relatively speaking, but none of them cross Manhattan. That was, but one of the plans was for one of them to happen you know, just outside your window here. It, it is something where the idea of the Lower Manhattan Expressway hung over the neighborhood for a period of decades, but the physical changes never really took place. Um, so on the one hand side, you have Robert Moses and, and the establishment and uh, the real estate. So who was on the other side? There was a, a, co a coalition of 
coalition of sort of, of residents and politicians against the, high, um, against the Lower Manhattan Expressway. I mean, you know, so much of this history in New York is told through the sort of clashes between Robert Moses on one hand and Jane Jacobs on the other. And Jane Jacobs was part of the committee to stop the Lower Manhattan Expressway. Um, there was also, you know, because there were no residents in Soho, um, you know, you didn't hear as many protests from the business community, but certainly the the um, lit residents and um, churches in Little Italy were kind of um, standing up against the highway. Um, and also, eventually, later in the game, there was a group of artists who came out, and they founded a group called Artists Against the Expressway to, to um, highlight what the damage that would be done to New York's art community based on this highway. But you know, for, for a large part, I mean, certainly the protests against this this highway were were important, and you know, ultimately, I think they played a um, critical role in stopping the construction. But there were other factors. I mean, simply the time, you know, that you know, building highways in other parts of New York was less expensive. It was easier. I mean, this is Manhattan. It's the most built-up area of the city, and there's a reason. There's a reason that no highway was ever built across the entire island. I mean, and that's that's not just because of who who lived in Soho or worked in Soho. The same could be said for 34th Street or 125th Street, where there were other plans to create limited access highways. Yeah. So uh, Jane Jacobs, uh, I often say that she should have a statue of her at mm -hmm. the Soho Plaza, uh, the square over yeah. there where they just actually renovated the square. It looks right, pretty right. damn good. Um, so, but is she, or is it there, it, it's more complicated than that because I, I, I noticed in your book Chester Rapkin's study from 1963 about the, uh, basically that, that this was a very important industrial zone and needed to be preserved as one. Right, Chester Rapkin at least has a plaque a, a few blocks from here, I believe on Prince Street, um, close to West Broadway. Um, but yeah, Chester Rapkin, you know, he's, it's, Soho is, is inter an interesting case because yes, Robert Moses is, part of the story, Jane Jacobs is part of the story, but there isn't this sort of big hero or villain in this multi-decade development. But Chester Rapkin is as close as you get, and you know, Chester Rapkin is an urban planning professor. He actually, he used to work in the same uh, building that I do at Princeton in, in the School of Architecture. Um, at that time, he wasn't at Princeton, I believe he was at Penn, but so when there was this um, idea floated to build a middle-income housing development in what is now Soho, the City Planning Commission hired Chester Rapkin to undertake a study of the area. Um, and you know, he, went, you know, he, he and a team of researchers went around, you know, interviewed business owners, took inventories of you know, workers, and we made this rather persuasive argument. Remember, this is 1963, really the height of the civil rights movement, that Soho was critical, you know, although the businesses were not particularly fancy, they weren't super, super profitable, but they were chugging along, and they had a particular role to play in you know, providing jobs for, um, for blue-collar workers in the city, particularly African-American and Puerto Rican uh, residents of New York. And you know, that argument was, was persuasive. And because of that, you know, there, there weren't too many really advanced plans, but that pretty much ended any, um, any momentum for you know, tearing down Soho and creating an urban renewal project there. And then uh, I understand the problem was that he, th there was a plan in place, but there was no funding coming in to make sure that this plan could then have um, a possibility of uh, creating something special. I is that uh, correct? There, there was no specific funding in place, but at that period of time it wasn't such a, um, it wouldn't have been so difficult for a pro you know, to you know, purchase these beautiful lofts, yeah. eminent domain, and you know, build something new there. Yeah. But it didn't really happen. Uh, the industrial sort of era went, went 
down more or less. And then you have the artists coming in. Right, right. right. Yeah, I mean, there is, it's this... It's a story, the same thing with the Lower Manhattan Expressway. There's, there's enough problems to create a space for someone to do something new, but there's enough sort of going for the area that no one wants to take a really drastic step to, to change things. So, you know, Rapkin's report and, you know, the, the pushback and the sort of general exhaustion with highway building in New York, you know, allows for industry to sort of keep, keep going. But it's, you know, it's not a particularly robust industrial sector. And during, you know, during the early 1960s, there are quite a few vacancies here. And so most of the buildings in Soho are owned by maybe an individual owner or a family, and they need to bring in rent. And you know, it's unclear who the first person was. I mean, the idea of artists living in industrial lofts is something that took place kind of scattered throughout the city, whether it's in uh, Conti's Slip, which is, you know, eventually became the site of the World Trade Center, or the Fur District in the 20s. You know, artists knew, knew that they were kind of big um, unpartitioned spaces that they could use in st as studios, and more and more they noticed that there were vacancies in Soho. So the artists begin to come into the area as the industrial era, it takes 20 or 30 years, is, is beginning to wind down. And then, of course, as you, as you noted in the book, the most exciting place to live, according to New York Times, in 1974. Right. So that went f fast, mm -hmm. you know, from the 50s to the, right. to the 70s. Uh, um, so what explains that? Do people are, are they attracted by this art? Are they attracted by the community? Are they attracted about what's happening here? Yeah, and that's an important question. I mean, one of the things I always was fascinated with is this idea of like why, why do art artist communities, why do gallery districts have a draw? Why is we have this idea now? Whether it's you know, Richard Florida's idea of the creative class or the National Endowment for the Arts, which you know still funds projects um, around this notion of creative placemaking. Like why do artist communities and the arts have this role to play in the city. And as, as you note, from Hell's Hundred Acres in 1962 to the most exciting place to live in the city in 1974, like what happened in those 12 years? And you know, there's a few, a few things happen. Like one is artists create what, you know, Soho artists create what we now know as the residential loft. You know, they can, you know, through um, borrowed money and shared labor, turned these pretty scruffy industrial spaces into you know, rather you know, simple but very attractive apartments, ones that look like nothing else um, in, in the city. Um, because, of the, because of the availability of commercial space and industrial loft space in the same neighborhood, art galleries begin to open in the area. And for the first time, you have a neighborhood in New York where artist residences and art galleries are sharing the same space. So it creates this vibrant community where there are openings, there are performances. There's just a lot going on that's kind of, that began to draw people down to Soho. But also there was a kind of a parallel process of legalization. Living in a loft it was illegal um, in the 1960s, and artists really had to come together and lobby um, city officials, urban planners, to change some of the regulations to make it so they wouldn't risk eviction for, for living in a loft. And that process regularized the residences in the area, but also attracted more and more attention to, to the neighborhood and helped it gain this reputation as an exciting place to live. A couple of uh, important uh, dates here. The landmark historic district in 1973 and the 1982 loft law that made living here um, legal, I guess. In this building we have AIR. You have to be an artist in residence. So we still are, are, are uh, struggling with these uh, restrictions or regulations from, from this era, basically. Right. 
Yeah, so in that, that, and that goes back to an early compromise that was made in, in 1964. You know, there was, in 1961, um, there's a series of fires in Soho, and the fire department and the building uh, department in the city go around to different lofts, think they're going to be just um, inspecting industrial businesses and start to find people living in these areas. Um, there's no sense that artists are causing fires, but, you know, for for city officials in charge of enforcing the law and making sure people are safe, they started to get really concerned and uh, pushed to evict these illegal tenants. And so artists begin to organize. They form a group called the Artist Tenants Association. And the first kind of compromise policy that's passed in 1974 is called AIR, Artist in Residence. This is artists could register for the city, register with the city, put a sign outside um, their, their loft that said Artist in Residence, and the fire department would sort of know who to come and rescue if need be. Eventually, that idea gets um, put into city zoning, the city zoning code in 1971, and a special, um, art, a special light industrial district is created in Soho by which um, one who is kind of a certified artist can live, live in this neighborhood in a loft. In fact, it's still the one place in the city where that, that has this special requirement. So it, it could be, you know, I, don't, I haven't looked at the map, but it, you know, I, I'm guessing that you're building, it's still in the zoning code that you know, one has to go in front of the city Department of Cultural Affairs and get certified as an artist to live, to live, to live in this structure. Eventually, um, the loft law, which was passed in 1982, and some of the amendments to the law allow people to sort of be grandfathered in. If they are, they're not a certified artist, but they lived in Soho for 15 years, they're not going to be evicted um, under this policy. But it still creates this very sort of diverse and, you know, frankly, um, you know, problematic on sometimes legal landscape um, for the neighborhood. It, it, it is, you know, it's something Carl Weisbrod, who was the first um, chair of the, the loft board when I interviewed him for the book, just sort of said, it's a bizarre policy. I mean, why, you know, I'm all for creating affordable spaces to live for, for artists, and I'm sure, you know, many are, but the idea of the city of New York judging who is an artist and who's not, it seems like it's, you know, I, not one to cry government overreach, but that sounds like probably not something we want our governments being in the business. So, of. so this is something that's totally unique to Soho. This type of zoning with this type of uh, well restrictions. Yeah, I, as far, as far as I know, yes, I I, I know of no other you know, similar examples. Um, that yeah, for for a whole district to have a special artist zoning. Yeah. So this was a very dynamic uh, artist community then in the 70s and 80s. And I have some friends uh, who lived here, one Swedish uh, painter, and he said he had more people coming to his opening than Rauschenberg had at the time, and he was very proud of that. Uh, things have changed since then, of course. But uh, so um, uh, what happened there? So the artists were here. They were sort of mixing into the, the community. And uh, it was a, the most attractive place to live, according to New York Times. And what happened uh, the next step, the next transition? Yeah, well, I think what was, what was so fascinating, and I think really just um, unique about Soho, is the artists were the community. I mean, you know, when I, I talked to longtime residents in the neighborhood, they would, you know, reminisce about what would happen on the weekends and, and after five o'clock on weekdays in the neighborhood. Because you know, during the day, it was a, you know, still an industrial area. There were workers coming and going. There were products sort of moving. But the area would really just clear out completely at night. And everyone residents would see on the street was, a was an artist, was a member of the community. So you'd get to know your neighbors. You'd find out um, you know, who was working on what. And after 1968, when galleries began opening in Soho, and more and more after 1970, when commercial um, 
galleries from Midtown started moving here. You, you know, you'd find out about who was having an opening, who's having what show, you know, and there was this, you know, kind of mutually supportive community, one where people were cr um, crossing genres um, with regularity because you would get to know the painter, the painter or the musician or the dancer kind of living all around you. So I think it was that milieu that starts to then attract people from maybe outside of the artist community. You know, I don't, it's hard because it was illegal, you don't have records, but my sense is like before, before the 1970, there weren't too many non-artists living in the area. But, but after 68 and 70, when galleries start coming here, when businesses start to open to cater to gallery visitors that have more restaurants, more shops, and then you know, once George McCunis, the Fluxus uh, artist, you know, comes up with this idea of turning loft buildings into cooperatives that people could own, that really begins a new phase in the neighborhood's history. Very interesting. And he, he is uh, on, is it Worcester and Canal? Yeah, there's a, the, one of the... Uh, there's a plaque there, and there, that's the, the original building where, where he had this. Yeah, 151 Broadway, West Broadway was one of them. What worked for Soho then could work in other places, and there are some theories about this, as you were talking about earlier, that uh, uh, sort of artist-driven urban development. Uh, uh, but the situation here in Soho is pretty unique, though. I mean, you cannot really recreate all those various things. I think that you mentioned in the book the, the importance of crisis and, the, uh, and of change, because there were so, ma so many simultaneous changes that really created this. What do you think of that, that theory of, of art? Is that something you can apply to all cities uh, to you know, renew the urban centers? Well, I, I think there's, you can answer that question in a variety of ways. I mean, one, one thing that's clear is that there are neighborhoods, it's weird to sort of personify a neighborhood, but like there are neighborhoods across the country, if not the world, where that seek to emulate Soho. I believe I was in Stockholm and there was a SoFo, and it yeah. was even like south of, I forget the name of the street, but that. Folkungagatan. <laughs> exactly, yes, I, I do remember that. I took a little picture, uh, of course. But the idea that like even, you know, you, Import an English word, like create an acronym that uh, that you know, signals that there's something about this neighborhood that is you know following in the footsteps of Soho. Whether it's it's certain type of chic, whether it's artists, whether it's a, it's kind of an industrial landscape. But I mean, it's it's unclear as to you know all of these you know maybe you know maybe even hundreds of neighborhoods worldwide that now have a Soho type name. What connection, if any, they have to the original Soho? Mm. I mean, there are some parts of the some parts of what happened here that were clearly exportable in one way or the other. The idea of converting industrial space, particularly light industrial space, warehouses to residences on a wide, on a wide scale, that's something you now see everywhere, whether it's you know, old industrial buildings converted into loft apartments or even purpose, even newly built residential structures that you know, emulate the sort of shape and feel of a, of a Soho industrial loft. That has certainly been um, sort of exported. The idea that like a gallery district could ha could spark an another other types of commercial activity. I mean, certainly you, I lived in Pittsburgh for several years. There was a Penn Avenue Arts District. They would have gallery crawls. That was one of the ways that the sort of business owners or, or, or kind of um, city representatives of that area worked to kind of bring people um, to the neighborhood. 
And there's also this general notion that the that artists have a particular role to play, um, especially in post-industrial cities or post-industrial neighborhoods. And that's something that I think has been a benefit to artists, but also you know a bit of a burden. You know, I think that it's very easy to sort of instrumentalize artists and instrumentalize the arts in a way that doesn't take the artists doesn't take artists and their own needs and their own challenges seriously. Um, so the artists finally moved out, more or less. I mean, there's some galleries left here, but not that many, actually. Yeah, some galleries have moved, and, and some, yeah, and you know, many artists left. Um, some, some are certainly still here. I mean, there are you know folks who are living in Soho who bought their lofts for fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars in in 1968, and you know, there was um, also you know if if the you know. If one, if a cooperative had the foresight to actually hang on to their ground floor retail space, you know, a lot of times the cooperative can use the rent on the ground floor retail space to subsidize the building maintenance, allowing an artist who maybe is not, um, it doesn't have a lot of income these days mm -hmm. to continue living um, living in a Soho loft. So there are you know, there are some artists who are still here. Um, certainly. You know, my, my research tails off in around 1982, and yeah. you know, by that area, certainly there are people getting priced out, particularly renters. Um, there's another generation of sort of lower Manhattan artists who come to prominence in the early um, to mid 80s. Um, but certainly, you know, you the, the art world sort of mo moved on. Um, certainly by the by the mid or, or late 1980s, there are other areas. You know, the the art world is a is a general is in many ways sort of um, moves in generations. You had you know maybe there was a group of, of painters and performance artists and dancers who used Soho as their home base, but the sort of next generation doesn't want to try to cram in next to you know the the, uh, the people they're trying to you know. You know, who inspired their work, but they also kind of want to break away from a little bit. So, you know, the East Village becomes one of the next centers. You have, um, you know, William Williamsburg um, a few years after that, and the art world is just sort of continuing to move. And now, and many of them moved to uh, to Chelsea, uh, and and now uh, Chelsea with the Hudson Yard and the High Line, everything is probably going to be too expensive for for all the galleries. So, so now they have to move again somewhere. Yeah, I mean, they, they've, you know, I think a lot of them were able to, to buy spaces, you know, these sort of have, you know, it's this continuing, you know, real estate luck or, or foresight, you know, if one, but, you know, if a gallery bought their loft in Soho in 1968 and they sold it then in 1990 and bought a space in Chelsea a couple of years later and they can sell it in, you know, 20, 2018, you know, one can sort of continue, you know, kind of using that real estate um, income to subsidize one's art sales. But yeah, the, the spaces in Chelsea that, you know, but, um, under the high line, are um, you know, in a way, way sort of larger analogs to you know Soho lofts. They're industrial spaces, high ceilinged, unpartitioned, but they're just bigger and sort of um, can are more fitting to successful galleries who have you know um, continued to you know be part of the art world since the since the 1960s. So interestingly enough, we are then uh, in, in, after 1990. Basically, we're back in retailing. We're back in the commercial. So now it's now it's like the retailing. Haven here for for uh, everybody comes to Soho to shop and it's, uh, uh, it's as you said and I mentioned before you know in the daytime there are lots of people here and at nighttime it's totally uh, empty um, and you can also see the, the the signs there's a lot of retailing spaces uh, f up for lease. Right. I mean, 
So are we, we going through the next transition? Do you, do you have any ideas on where that's going to take us? It, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, Soho, you know, since, since the 1980s, has, there's been a few, a few other developments, right? I mean, there's the, you know, here on Broadway, these are where some of the larger lofts were constructed. They were the ones that were more, you know, better suited to, to industrial production for longer. So there's sort of a, the smaller lofts get taken over by artists and galleries first, and then it's not until much later that the larger lofts sort of go that way. So yeah, you had, I believe, starting in the 1990s, and I'm a little shaky on this, you know, larger retail spaces being leased along Broadway and being the shop, you know, major shopping district. You also, you know, the large unpartitioned spaces also seem to fit really well with the sort of architecture of the tech startup and the sort of creative businesses. So that's another kind of industry that's in Soho. But I think this is a, this is a big question that everyone interested in or living in urban spaces or suburban spaces is really thinking about for the future. You know, what if retail is struggling? You know, large flagship stores with a lot of square footage in New York are incredibly expensive to maintain and, you know, they, they're clearly struggling. So what, what those spaces will become is, is an open question. Certainly New York could use some more housing, um, could use some more nonprofit artist spaces, but, you know, I... I always you know, pleading ignorance as a historian. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the future holds. Wonderful. Well, again, Aaron, thank you so much for, for the book that you have written, which I find very, very interesting and enlightening. And make, as I said before, the history of Soho come, uh, come alive in a, in a wonderful way. And thank you so much for participating in this uh, podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation, access show notes, and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of Art Insiders New York, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2019.